Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And last week, the City of Melbourne approved in-principle regulations on short-stay rental accommodation like Airbnb as a way of improving the housing crisis. What's being considered is a 180-night cap on how many times you can let out your property through short-stay accommodation and plus a regulation fee of $350. Responses to this move has been, have been mixed and it's not clear if it will be strong enough regulation to achieve the aim, which is for owners to return properties to long-term rental because there's a shortage there. Professor Wendy Stone is with Swinburne Centre for Urban Transitions. She's recently studied this area for the New South Wales government as well and it's uh, great to have you back on Triple R. Wendy, good morning. Good morning, Kalia. Good morning, Kiroan. And, I mean, how much, what is the interplay between short-term rental accommodation and the availability of long-term rental with regards to pricing and all of those issues, Wendy? Is it quite a strong correlation? It's a a very strong correlation uh, and it's also a variable correlation. So there's a a different kind of relationship um, in... Uh, peak, you know, tourist spots, for example, um, compared with um, suburban locations, compared with inner city locations. So we we know there's a strong relationship for a couple of reasons. One of those um, listeners may remember that in uh, the middle of COVID, when we're all in lockdowns in Melbourne, no one could travel anywhere, uh, we all remember. But what happened in the housing market at that time is that we saw a whole lot of uh, short-term rental uh, dwellings uh, flipped back into the housing market. So what our research recently for the Independent uh, New South Wales Planning Commission focused on was not so much on where people are letting out, say, one room, that kind of thing in their home, but actually where a whole property, whether it's an apartment, a townhouse or a freestanding, freestanding home, where there's a whole dwelling that's converted basically taken out of the housing system and moved into a tourism system. That's the part that we're focused on and there's absolutely a direct relationship between uh, rental prices and the extent to which properties are taken out of the housing system and moved into short-let accommodation. And obviously experiences differ depending on location and where there are sort of tourist hotspots and and that sort of thing. But as a general rule, can you give us a a bit of a sense of what landlords might stand to gain from letting out a sort of short-term Airbnb type accommodation compared to long-term? Uh, rentals? Yeah, at the moment, um, unfortunately, uh, just a lot of the incentives, I guess, um, for investing in in housing um, are available to people who um, invest in housing and then flip that um, property into um, tourist accommodation. So people are still benefiting from negative gearing, um, capital gains exemption, as well as being able to charge um, more per night than they would if they were in long-term renting. So what we actually did for the New South Wales Planning Commission was try to map out actually the tipping point at which um, it would become more profitable or at least equally profitable to return a short let uh, full dwelling back to the back into the housing system, into the rental system. And 
really importantly, that, that will vary place to place. But what we found, we were, we were focused on Australia's, I guess, if you like, the peak of the peak that is Byron Bay. Um, we've also got some data for Melbourne, so I'm happy to share that with you now. But in Byron Bay, um, we found that uh, it literally in the, in the Byron Bay township, um, 13.8, so 14% of all of the housing stock had been uh, used for actually not only just short lets, but specifically for Airbnb. That's the data we have about Airbnb. Wow. So um, that, that's a very large proportion of housing stock. What um, the, the council fair had proposed was something like the Melbourne City Council are proposing. They were looking at, um, an, say, 120 days or 190 days of capping our modelling showed that it was only when that cap was brought down to about 90 days in that area that it would be profitable for people investing in housing stock to actually return that to the rental rental system. Uh, and that will vary um, depending on the, re- the rent in the area and how much people can actually charge for a, uh, you know, a, a tourist um, Airbnb. Um, but it's really significant. So in, in the Melbourne city area, for the, the data we used were from March 2020, uh, or 2022, sorry, um, we found that the total housing stock, there was over 3% of all houses or dwellings in the Melbourne uh, local government area were used simply as Airbnb, not even all short lets. So that's, um, you know, three and a hundred, and we're talking about uh, that really does change... The, the extent to which people can, in particular in that sort of city area, they can access smaller apartments, uh, you know, mixed mixed kind of size um, dwellings. And um, we, we really, uh, I guess, encourage the Melbourne City Council uh, to look a bit more broadly to the other sort of international experience and, and this New South Wales research uh, to think about maybe even taking another step further um, than what is on the table at the moment. And uh, there's 26 minutes past nine. We're speaking with Swinburne Uni's Professor Wendy Stone about uh, what would really incentivise people to take properties out of Airbnb shortlet and put them back into long-term rental. Uh, we're in the midst of a, a rental crisis uh, across the country but also in Melbourne. And, Wendy, it's an interesting um, what, what you spelled out there, that really it's, it's profit, is it, that drives behaviour here. So if people can make more return on short stay, they'll potentially go that way rather than long-term rental. Is that sort of what we're grappling with? Yeah, there used to be a situation where maybe, you know, somebody inherited a holiday shack from their, you know, great aunt and then they had a holiday home, that kind of thing, and left it out a little bit. What we're really seeing over the last decade is that there are a lot of players in the system. So you might think that you're, you know, you're letting out your Airbnb, your Airbnb accommodation comes from, for example, Diane down the road. Actually, that could be a cover for an organisation or a group of people who own, you know, hundreds of these properties. It's not always the case, but but there are certainly people playing the system in ways that is really detrimental for housing and tourism, uh, and it's changing the nature of of cities and and regions. Um, So we can look to international evidence and just think about how we can use registration fees, how we can use compliance testing and checking uh, to to just um, rein back in, if you like, to a, to a more balanced um, situation, the use of housing for tourism. Um, but overall, 
we, we would also argue very strongly that we need, as part of the, the new sort of Victorian rental inquiry and also the national um, move to get a new national housing and homelessness plan, the first one since 1992 is just being developed and um, submissions are welcome now. If anyone wants to submit, everyone is able to, uh, to tell their story. Um, that part of that national plan needs to really think about taking a national response to short-led accommodation across all states and territories and all local government areas. It's what Europe is moving to. There's currently development of a Europe-wide uh, set of principles and practices to to get some of this housing back into the housing stock um, and begin to address homelessness. It's, it's not the only solution, but it's an important part of the solution. Yeah, I'm interested in, in that perspective in terms of the interrelationship between, you know, legislating sort of on a national basis and having policies in place to address this issue as a whole in Australia, but also how it might be addressed locally, because we've, you know, we've touched on the Melbourne City Council's, um, you know, potential reforms that might be brought in. We know in places like, for example, you know, Noosa, there's been efforts by, um, you know, local councils and the like to bring in regulations in response to, you know, some people feeling like they can't find uh, suitable kind of longer term accommodation in those kinds of places and also in ways that can accommodate people on sort of tourist visas or, or working visas who might want to stay for, you know, an extended period of time, but, um, you know, set up routes maybe for, for sort of six months and that sort of thing. So what's your sense of, of how we can sort of both manage the local um, uh, kind of context effectively, but also have a national framework in place that ensures that we don't have this sort of long-term housing shortage across the board? Yeah, I think um, I think it's a work in progress. Actually, we really need to take a, a good look at all of the evidence internationally and nationally. Currently, in Australia, the local government areas are leading the way. There's no doubt about that. Um, but rather than every single local council having to undertake its own review, its own approach, um, and reinvent the wheel. What we'd suggest is at the national level um, that the main levers that can be used are, um, say, capping the number of days. Uh, the ta- obviously, there are taxation sort of incentives and so on that can be looked at nationally. But at the state and local level, it's about capping the number of days. It's about um, changing registration fees for um, short let days from, you know, just a matter of hundreds of dollars to maybe multiple thousands of dollars to, to really um, get people to think about providing housing rather than um, tourism. And it's also um, enabling local communities to, to act in relation to this because it changes the nature of community. One really easy thing um, that could happen in Victoria that's already happened in New South Wales is... Just um, a very um, low-hanging fruit is to enable strata title um, holders to vote against uh, shortlets in their complexes. Um, so in New South Wales, it's possible for um, you know resident um, corporations within strata title, so blocks of flats and units. Um, to take a vote on whether they will block uh, shortlet accommodation from their um, from their sort of, um, yeah, set of flats or, or whatever it is. But we don't currently have that in Victoria. That would be a really quite straightforward um, way that the state government could support local governments to to start to um, rein this this sort of problem in because I think everyone, you know, has loved a, a lovely sort of short-let accommodation. But what we're realising now is that the scale of our attachment and our, our reliance on them is actually changing the housing system and contributing to our 
increasing numbers of homelessness and it's um, something we all have to take responsibility for. Yeah, it's really interesting because, I, I mean, you know, just a bit of a hat tip to the, the Airbnb uh, model because it has come from peer-to-peer, hasn't it? it? It has changed over time. At first it was people saying, oh, come stay at my place and I've got a spare room or whatever it is and, it, and it's grown into something ma- massive. Uh, a lot of people yeah. enjoy that kind of accommodation because there's a kitchen there, it feels homely, and I wonder if any of this policy work is looking at hotels, could they provide cooking? Could they change their model? Could they provide housing? Uh, You know, I know there's famous hotels in other parts of the world that have long-term residents, for instance, and I wonder if it's going the other way as well, uh, Wendy, to put, you know, a bit similar to, you know, like ride shares. The taxi industry has pulled up its socks and provided a better service as in, in response to the competition. I wonder if that's also part of this. Yeah, I think it's a really important part of the conversation. It's not my field of expertise, but having heard from um, some of the tourism um, leads around this, I think there's a lot that can be learned from what people obviously want um, in tourism based on the short let. You know, it is absolutely that having control of your own kitchen, having that private space. It's probably more family friendly in some ways, um, people tend to think. So I think if, if we can start to, you know, put some incentives in place for, um, you know, reducing the shortlets and getting that money back into the tourism sector, I, I think there could be really exciting sort of options that we begin to see about how um, traditional tourism markets might be able to respond. But where they're being left out of the loop at the moment, I guess, economically through, you know, an unregulated or relatively unregulated, very lightly regulated shortlet uh, market is that that the money um, simply isn't in that sector for them to innovate in the way that they need to as well. So it's it's really um, bringing the tourism sector together with uh, real estate and, and um, housing and homelessness um, policy to get this into much better balance because I, th- I think there are some really exciting ways that tourism sector in Australia could really respond in a good way here. On that positive note, uh, thank you so much for being with us on Triple R again. Thanks so much. Triple R. We have a date. On Saturday, October 14, Australians will vote in a referendum on enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament. It's been a long road to get here, spurred off the back of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which came out in 2017. And while there were initial hopes there could be a bipartisan approach to constitutional change, that has been far from the case. The Liberal Party has been making the case for no, seeking to cast doubt on the viability of the advisory body and leading what has become an increasingly fractious debate with the First Nations people squarely in the centre. It's hard to know what the result will be in around six weeks' time, but for some clues, it pays to look for history. The author and journalist George Megalogenis has done just that for an essay in the monthly called Diverse Voices, and he joins us now on the line. Hello, George. Great to chat again. Good to hear your voices. Good morning, team. Hello. Morning. And, I mean, it's well known that only eight of the previous 44 referendums have delivered a a yes votes and brought change. When thinking about those results, what should we look to as a potential guide for how things might pan uh, pan out this time around? Yeah, when you think about when you think about the eight that got up, um, there's one really that stands out, and that's the uh, the 1967 referendum uh, to count Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders in the census for the purposes of representation and also for the Commonwealth to make laws on their behalf, and that uh, that was a, an overwhelming yes vote. You know, 
in the order of about 90% nationally and pretty much every state by WA uh, towards 90%. WA is a bit lower. There was there was a second question asked that day, which was interesting because that was the that was the first question Harold Holt put, uh, and it was about the so-called it was so-called nexus question between the House of Reps and the Senate, and it didn't get up. It didn't even get up in his own state. So it was it's always interesting to know what Australians were thinking at the time. Uh, they were either confused or they didn't care about this thing, or it was a little too political. They knocked it off. But the second one, which is the one we always look back to. Uh, was this idea that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders deserved a fair go. They were one of us, uh, they, they should be treated equally. Now, that that sort of stands out as a bit of a light on the hill in terms of referendum because it was sort of bipartisan, but also a community-led campaign. The other seven, a couple of them are pretty uh, pretty interesting, but if you think about the ones that failed, pretty much everyone that failed either failed uh, due to disinterest or an active no campaign from from uh, from the opposition, and the the things are the thing are sort of the the line the, the through line through this uh, through every one of them, and I did go to the trouble of checking every question, uh, is it's very easy to get the Australian people to say no to something. It doesn't mean that they are across the issue. It doesn't necessarily mean that they've suddenly got angry, uh, or that they're suddenly, uh, or that they've suddenly, you know, done a Trump or a Brexit on us. If we use some sort of modern metaphors, it's just it's very easy. If one side of politics say, "Don't do it," uh, tribal loyalty kicks in, and and the public will tend to follow, uh, follow the follow the case from their side. So that's the. Um, you know, that's 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 the history of it. So there is no precedent for a uh, for a referendum question to get up when one of the uh, major parties opposes. But there's also and this is a counter precedent when you think about '67, when there's a when there's a, a grassroots community campaign uh, which pretty much uh, runs outside the political system. Remember, Harold Holt. This was his second question. It wasn't his first question in '67. That community, that community campaign seems to have been the thing that really carried um, the 67 question over the line. Uh, I probably haven't given you any, any insight yet into what I think might happen, but um, that's, your, that's essentially your framework. I mean, what do you see, if anything, the relationship between electoral boundaries, you know, where we vote for MPs to, to go federally, and referendums because they are actually not based on electoral boundaries. But what can voting patterns in, in elections and, and voting patterns by electorate for referendums tell us about what yeah, might so come here? Is, yeah, so I've got to... Um, I, don't want to I don't want people to get too far into my head, but in my study I've got a, uh, I've got a, in a corner on the floor. I've laid out uh, an old hard copy version of the Australian Electoral Commission's Election 98 map which is a map of all the seats uh, in and around the uh, election result of 98. And that was that GST election. That's not why I kept that. It was just sitting in the um, shed and I pulled it out and I realised I could uh, I could draw the referendum map over the <laughs> how, top of this map. How big is the so map, George? How big is it? <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's uh, it's uh, two, two A3 pages. Okay. Uh, side by side. It's not that big. It doesn't, it doesn't take up the floor. It's a corner of the floor and it's... Uh, <laughs> It's uh, it's it's not a prominent piece of furniture, but the interesting thing about this is because it lays out all the um, there's a map of Australia, but then it lays out all the um, all the metropolitan divisions. And the Electoral Commission did us the favour during the referendum 
uh, on the Republican 99 of giving us the yes, no votes in the seats. And that that really told us the story of, well, in those days people were talking about two Australians, but it's much more interesting than that. Gives you, it gives you an idea in every capital city what the, what the income and cultural divides are. And so you look at Melbourne, for instance, which was one of the strongest yes cities in 99 for a republic. Uh, Canberra was the strongest and Melbourne was the second strongest. There are only three seats in the outer south, uh, which, were, uh, which were no. And pretty much everywhere else, including all the, all the uh, middle and uh, higher income Liberal electorates, you know, Goldstein, Higgins, Kuyong, Menzies, Deakin and Aston, you know, through the, you know, from the bay through the eastern suburbs, uh, they all voted yes. Sydney's an interesting one, though, because Sydney was really a 50-50 state. It was a bit over half voted yes, but all of the western suburbs where Labor was strong voted no, uh, which I find fascinating when I look at Sydney. I look at Melbourne as a slightly more cohesive city than Sydney at the time. Perth uh, only had the one yes seat, which was Curtin, which is now no longer in uh, Liberal hands. Adelaide was also divided, but the three three seats were yes and three seats were no. And even Brizzy was divided. Uh, a couple of seats were yes and three seats were no. Anyway, so when I look at when I look at that map and I transpose it onto onto the today story, uh, in terms of the referendum, you would uh, uh, on the voice you tend to think that the seats that voted yes in the late nineties will, will tend to vote yes now. Now, in, the, in those seats, when we sort of do a count back, there were 17 Liberal electorates in 99 that voted yes. They've only got five left in their hands. And if you think about what those electorates uh, were telling us, especially at the last couple of elections, that's where all the Teals and the Greens and, uh, and uh, a couple of Labor ambushes as well, Higgins in, uh, in Melbourne most notably, and Benelong in Sydney. These are seats that the Liberals uh, had never lost, most of them, when the referendum comes in 99, most of them vote yes, but they sort of are still with Howard. You know, they're, they're sort of loyal in terms of economics, but in terms of cultural identity, you know, they're not with him, but they're still Liberal voters. Uh, roll forward the 20 odd years, and by the time you get to Abbott and then especially Morrison, that Liberal base has been blown up uh, with their sort of culture war um, tendencies. Now, I don't see any of those seats coming back at the next election. I see those seats voting a big yes at the referendum, even if the referendum doesn't get up. And the way it's been explained to me by a couple of people, both on the Labor and the Liberal side, and this message has been, it was, was being put to Dutton repeatedly in the first half of the year when he was still sort of toying with his soft no, hard no, is Julian Lisa the shadow or is Jacinta Price the shadow? And they, they were trying to explain to him that there's no way back into majority government for you if you sacrifice these electorates that are likely to be yes. And the way it was explained to me was... If it's a no vote, most of the people who vote no will, will walk out of the ballot box and, and not think about it again. There might be a small fraction of the population that might be really energised by, by the defeat of the voice, but most people who vote no will probably vote as a dunno as opposed to a no. The yes voters will never forgive Dutton, especially if they were in previously safe Liberal-held electorates. And that's the, for me, that's the thing I can't get my head around. I can't get my head around his, his long-term... Uh, thinking. So yeah. how does how does knocking the referendum off, and how does perpetuating a problem which is you know foundational for for, for, for European settlement in Australia, uh, how does perpetuating that problem, and also buying yourself a, a you know a, a dozen enemies in electorates that are a barrier to re-entry for your side of politics in the majority government? And I'm 
I can't make head or tail of it. And I'm trying to be as, as sort of as sort of as sort of neutral about this as possible. But he sort of he sort of he sort of decided to do the nasty thing in the short term. But in the end, he only hurts himself. Yeah, that's really interesting to reflect on. We're speaking with George Megalogenis, author and journalist, all about his piece in the September edition of the monthly called Diverse Voices, where he's crunched the numbers on kind of uh, electorates and, and referendums gone by to give us a sense of, of, of how things you know, potentially might pan out on October 14 when we vote on enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And, and on that, George, I mean, I suppose it's worth reminding listeners who you know very well might be familiar about how referenda sort of work in this country. So we need a, um, a sort of national majority as well as a majority of four um, out of the six states for it to get up. And I mean, in terms of Dutton's strategy, you've kind of highlighted how it might um, sort of, you know, damage the Liberal Party politically long term, regardless of the result itself. But in, in terms of the states that, that need to go yes for this to get up, so Tasmania in South Australia seem to be the key ones. Based on the electoral maps that you've kind of been looking at, is there a path to victory for the yes vote in consideration of the, the politics of this, how the Labor Party is kind of, you know, getting behind yes and, and the role of the Liberal Party in pushing the no case and, and you know, kind yeah. of in, in a way aligning with those culture war kind of tendencies? Yeah, so good. this is a good question. So one of the... Um, I've, I've, I've sort of... I'll, I'll, Bring a thread back uh, in terms of the um, the campaign itself at the moment. So there's there's a, a lot of door knocking's been going on, and a lot of local members uh, are pushing the yes vote. Uh, Liberal, not Liberal so much. Um, Labor, Green, Teal. But in Tasmania, obviously, there's a Liberal, a very prominent Liberal in uh, pushing the yes vote, and also the Premier. So first of all, let's look at Tassie. Tassie, Tassie, to all intents and purposes, with Bridget Archer as a federal member and with the, with the state premier, Jeremy Rockliffe, uh, they are essentially running at a state-level uh, bipartisan campaign with Labor. And so I think that... And, and the independents in the Senate, uh, Jackie Lambie, especially. So I think when you look at Tasmania, Tasmania is an interesting case study in what, what ground-level bipartisanship might look like. There's also an interesting, um, from what I'm, the feedback I get from sort of private feedback in terms of what the private tracking poll shows, uh, there, there's some Indigenous voices in Tasmania that's quite polarising, sort of very old school, treaty first, uh, let's, not, let's not negotiate with the state, let's blow everything up, uh, group within Tasmania. And they, there's a couple of them that are pushing, are pushing a no vote. They actually aren't affecting. They aren't affecting the result. But there's always been a concern in the yes camp that uh, that, that Tasmania could fracture if uh, if a very hard no came from the indigenous community there. South Australia is another interesting case in point. South Australia is, in terms of its sort of 99 referendum profile, and now in terms of its um, its its sort of state and local Liberal member of the federal uh, profile, it's essentially a bipartisan state as well. There isn't a very, very strong no voice in South Australia. So if you think about South Australia and Tasmania, you've got a Queenslander in Peter Dutton, and you've got his National Party colleague, David Littleproud, who's also a Queenslander, asking you to vote no. In South Australia and Tassie, do you think, I'm not sure, do you think that you'll be listening to the, to the national message or are you listening to local messages? We know, we know what we saw in COVID 
Uh, once, once the borders were closed, we all retreated to our colonial identities. So, um, and Scott Morrison had the biggest problem of all because he looked uh, he looked to all intents and purposes like a like a Sydney fighter telling the rest of the country uh, when they couldn't couldn't go out. So South Australia and Tassie are in play uh, for a number of reasons. One of which is that they, since the since the referendum in '99, they've actually moved a little more to the left in terms of their electoral profile. Even though Tassie's uh, the oldest electorate in the Commonwealth, and um, and the Libs are pretty strong there in a couple of seats. So that's that's what, the other reason. The other reason why those two states are in play is that there are is that there are they are small markets. Uh, so population-wise, they uh, there's 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 fewer people in play. Um, more persuadables, hopefully. Um, both sides tend to tend to see it that way. Now let's whiz around. Let's go back up to Queensland. Nobody nobody thinks Queensland will vote yes. And part of the reason that nobody thinks Queensland will vote yes is more than half the population still live outside the capital city. And that tends to be that tends to be a, 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 a marker for you know it's easy to run the, it's easy to run the say no to the politicians for this. Argument in uh, in in, um, in regional Queensland, WA is problematic. WA people thought WA on, on the yes camp. People thought WA was persuadable. Uh, Mark McGowan's gone now. Uh, the Labor government's had a bit of uh, a bit of uh, trouble there. The other one is WA was the weakest state for the Republic of '99. Perth was the only capital city in '99 that didn't vote yes when you when you toted up all the all the electorates. And so there, um, that's where you've ended up. You've ended up with South Australia, Tassie, essentially as the swing states. But then bear in mind what that means is there's an assumption that the diversity of Melbourne and Sydney uh, will carry both New South Wales and Victoria. And that because Melbourne and Sydney are 40% of the national population, the votes in those two cities people expect will be big enough to, to push the yes vote close to 50% nationally, regardless of what happens everywhere else. Most diabolical scenario for the uh, yes camp is a, is a narrow national yes vote, 51, 52, 53, but only three of the states get carried. And I don't know what the country does with itself if that happens. Um, just going back to the past, uh, I don't see an example where where you get a narrow majority uh, national vote in four out of the six states. It's either all six states and a strong national vote, or it's uh, five of the six states and a strong national vote. There's been some case, there's been some examples in the past where you've had a vote in the low 50s nationally, but only a couple of states carried it carried that vote. So, um, you know, we're in partly because of the decision Dutton made for political purposes, for political reasons, not necessarily strategically wise for his side of politics. We're in this we're in this um, difficult situation where. A combination of ground game, community, uh, door knocking, and then just hopefully when people march into the ballot box, they uh, they don't want to feel, you know, that yes isn't going to hurt them, and they'll say, well, I don't yeah, want to go, go there. You know, I have another question, but I just wanted to check when people talk about swing states, what does that actually mean with regards to a, a re- referendum? Uh, George, uh, is it swing yeah, okay, from the so last referendum or yeah, is this swing that they could go either way? Because I understand swing in regards to federal elections or state elections where that particular electorate goes this way or that way, depending. But what do we mean when we talk about a swing state with regards to a in referendum? This, in this, yeah, in this context, I think what we've, what we've seen is that both the yes and the no camp have, have pretty much decided that 
New South Wales and Victoria are, 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 are going to be a yes, and Queensland and WA are going to be no. So the energy that both sides are focusing on are in are in South Australia and Tasmania. That could go either way, and that's where that's where the well, swing comes. Well, they may not go. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. It's probably it's probably probably long term. They may not go either way. They may already be locked in. Mm. Um, but but they seem to be the two states that um, that both sides uh, think. Uh, are worth their time. Well, put it this way: strategically, they think it's worth their time to focus uh, attention there. So the yes, the yes side is obviously not going to be um, pounding the um, pounding the bush tracks of Queensland to try and get um, to try yeah. and persuade. Mm. So it's just that uh, effort that people put into things. That it, it's similar yeah. to an, a, a winnable electorate. It's the, and they're called swing. I, I get it. Um, the one yeah. I, I wanted to ask you because we don't have much time left, but uh, in regards to a progressive no vote and just going back to. 1999 and the referendum and there was a vote of no in that referendum to people that didn't like the model they wanted a republic but they didn't want that kind of a republic Uh, what's the sense about a progressive no vote because many people uh, are talking about this this progressive no and and you just mentioned it earlier about where First Nations people in Tasmania might go on this uh, and and others I mean what what is it potential that a progressive no would have an influence here on the result for this referendum, do you think? So, the, the, just to remind listeners, um, the interesting thing about 99 was, uh, and there was an exit poll done by some academics straight after the referendum, and there was a news poll done on the weekend of the, leading up to the referendum. Both of them showed that on the up-down question, do you want an Australian head of state, roughly three-quarters of the population want an Australian head of state. The monarchy only had support of about a quarter of the population. We know that the, that the referendum came out 55-45 no, which means that pretty much half the yes, half the Republicans voted no, if that makes sense, mm. in, um, in 99. Now, this referendum, the voice hasn't started at, at three quarters. It's, you know, 70, 70%, 75%, you know, leaning yes. It started around 60. So the progressive no vote, uh, so-called, is not equivalent to the, to, the, uh, to the direct election Republic vote in 99. The progressive no vote, at the, it, Lydia Thorpe is really, is really the most prominent um, of the, uh, the members of the parliament with a progressive no argument. And that progressive no argument is that don't deal with the state on its terms, let's get a treaty. That's essentially her argument. Now, the, um, the Uluru dialogue say, "Well, treaties sort of in the, in the timeline, but let's get let's get a voice first. Let's get, at least get equality of, um, of representation in the parliament. Uh, let's be able to put a voice in the parliament." Now, that progressive no, the progressive no, so called, um, as I said, it's not equivalent to '99. That may persuade some younger people who uh, who lean yes, and may persuade some younger people to go no. It will have literally no traction for those who are already predisposed to know, who are conservative knows. Uh, and the Dunno's, well, the Dunno's, and this is, the, this is the group that I think Peter Dutton uh, thinks he understands, uh, that group, they don't need an excuse to vote. No, if, 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 they get the, if they get the frontline message that it's too complicated, it's not worth your time thinking about, that's, um, 
that's uh, that's another group again. Yeah, in your work, George, I mean, you often tap into seminal moments in this nation's history, looking at how they brought about sort of much broader, longer-term change. We know with this referendum, I mean, the stakes are, you know, obviously particularly high for First Nations people, those who are, who are backing it in and saying yes, are hoping that it will lead to some substantial change, um, you know, reflecting on, on many, many years of neglect and no traction on things like Aboriginal deaths in custody and so on. But but how significant do you think this event as a referendum will be for the nation as a whole, thinking about, you know, whether it gets up or not? Uh, that's a really good question. So the way I view it at the moment, um, if it gets up, despite the despite the, all the hurdles, if it gets up, it will be a unifying moment. Even a narrow victory will be a unifying moment. The country will feel a lot better about itself on the on the Sunday if it gets up. If it doesn't get up on the Sunday, there'll be there'll be a fair bit of um, a bit of fair bit of pain. But the takeout message on the Sunday uh, will be it, let's let's assume it's a little more decisive than not. That's not you know fifty five and only three of the four states. Um, if it doesn't get up, I think the message is is a really awful sense of continuity for the last 20 odd years where the country sort of lost its ability to problem solve. So it would it, it would be the next and probably the most painful part in the in a continuum going all the way back to um, uh, to the Tampa and September 11 when suddenly the country lost its ability you know, after the implementation of the GST the country sort of lost its ability to think big after after that point. And that um, <clears throat> As disturbing as that is, uh, my, I don't end up thinking that we're suddenly more racist or that we're suddenly a meaner place, uh, that the level of disengagement in politics is so baked in now it's very difficult to get anything done. So that's, 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 that's how I tend to view the uh, yes versus no. Yeah. Yes would, yes would, um, would almost permit... The interesting thing about yes, from the Labor government's permission, uh, from the Labor government's perspective, it almost permit them to start dreaming big dreams in terms of um, social and economic reform. At the moment, they're in a bit of a holding pattern, waiting for this thing to go one way or the other, and then they'll they'll figure out a way they think to win the next election. As I said, I don't think Peter Dutton, I don't think Peter Dutton has wargamed this. Yeah, I think this is a, he's picked a fight that is not in his interests. It's been great spending so much time with you this morning, George. I commend everyone to your essay in the current edition of The Monthly. There's, um, there's lots to comp- uh, contemplate um, coming out of All what right. you just said. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for letting me talk. <laughs> Thanks, George. <laughs> Anytime. Triple R. According to our next guest, Melbourne's Yarra River, the Birrung, is underappreciated by many of us. And that that's when it comes to its biodiversity and its importance to life in this city. Writer Harry Sadler set out to change this with his book, Clear Flowing Yarra, which reads like a very long letter about everything that is impressive about the meandering 242-kilometre-long Birrung. Uh, in the book, we meet dozens of people up and down the river as Harry gets to know the different communities that protect it, enjoy it, and even swim in it, um, and also... Others, critters, animals like platypus, powerful owls, Rikali and the rest that call the Yarra and its tributaries and the environment around at home. Harry has popped by Triple uh, R Studios and it's really great to have you back. Um, we spoke to you, we worked out five years ago about the Eastern Curlew. And have a nice day, Harry. No, <laughs> the same. Uh, but, I mean, you have just 
imbued this book with such positivity about the Yarra, I have to ask, how come you feel like you need to, you know, convert us to uh, the, the beauty of this river? Well, thanks so much for having me back. It's great to be back. Uh, I wrote the book because, like many people in Melbourne, I'm not from Melbourne originally. I've been here nearly 20 years now. Um, and the one, the single thing that makes me feel most connected to Melbourne is is the river. But when you move to a place, and probably also when you grow up in a place, you kind of pick up through osmosis all these kind of received wisdom. And there's a lot of received wisdom about the Yarra, um, which people don't always stop to reflect on. There's a lot of entrenched attitudes about, you know, it's this dirty, filthy, dead river. And, like, it's, it's, it's often the subject of jokes and, you know, you sort of mentioned Bean Long and so on. And, Sooner or later, some wag will say, oh, do you see any bodies floating around? All, all, all this kind of stuff like that. Um, and obviously there are issues with the Yarra. There's obviously pollution in there, but also it's in a much, much better state than it was when all these entrenched attitudes were formed because historically it really has been treated appallingly, but there's been so much work in the recent decades in the last half century really to restore it and revegetate it and clean it up and... You can see the fruits of all those efforts just in terms of the wildlife that's in and along the Yarra or when you walk along along the river from, from the lower Yarra out to the catchment, it's pretty much a green belt, or at least out to you know out to the outer suburbs of, of Melbourne until you get to some of the farming land in the, in the Yarra Valley. But there's just nearly continuous bush um, and all the, all the wildlife or a lot of the wildlife that goes along with that. And I feel like that's something that really should be celebrated uh i also in in, not just in this book but in my writing in general um because i write about the environment and human relationships with the environment and the animals and stuff we all know that we live in a time of environmental crisis like that's it's just this is a given now i think it's no um but it's very easy to focus on that and to lose sight of and to focus on how much we've lost and to lose sight of how much we have still to save so I think it's important to tell celebratory stories about the environment. And was well. that really in front of mind as you approached this book kind of stylistically? Because your voice is very prominent in it. We get a really strong sense of your love of the Yarra. You're literally kind of chasing, you know, Salvatore up and down the Yarra, Yarra trying to get a glimpse of that seal and you're spotting platypuses everywhere as well. But you're also touching base with a whole bunch of different people who themselves are in some way involved in the Yarra. How did you kind of formulate this book and what you wanted it to be? Yeah, so from the start, because I wanted to write it as a celebration of a river, and I thought, well, it was going to be a celebration. It has to be written in a really kind of joyous, upbeat kind of tone. So I wanted to write a joyous book about about the river. Um, and for me, because I love going around and seeing animals and watching animals and Rabbiting on to people <laughs> at length about animals, so um, half the chap- half the book is chapters about animals and the wildlife I see, and that's those, that was quite easy to write in a joyous kind of a mode because it gives it gives me joy. Um, and half of the book was interviews with people, so the book is a series of little vignettes, basically um, a couple of dozen chapters, fairly short. So the the main in terms of writing the book and stylistically, the main challenge was getting the tonal balance right between those really upbeat, very, very chatty, sort of conversational, joyous chapters about animals with the chapters that are perhaps a little bit more sort of fact-heavy mm. or a little bit more sort of um, 
little philosophical or scientific, which is the interviews with people who are engaging with the river, whether they're scientists or people in Melbourne water or people who are swimming in the river. Or, yeah, and highlighting what's at stake if we yeah, don't look after the Yarra properly as well. Yeah, but I think also there's... For me, at least, as a reader, I find it really enjoyable just to learn about things that people are doing and to sort of sit down with people through the medium of a book and just kind of, you know, listen to their voice, so, so to speak, and read about it. So I was sort of trying to... So those chapters... Because my because my own personal voice was so prominent in the animal chapters, <laughs> I tried to sort of step back completely from the from the other chapters and let and let the other people talk. Yeah, and... yeah, it's uh, and you know it, it's so fun those animal chapters and particularly around yeah the platypus and around the creature that's a bit like a rat whose name I couldn't <laughs> pronounce. What was that one? So someone asked me the other day how to pronounce it and I said very confidently it's Fascagale, but then I realised I've already ever read it and that's the pronunciation I have in my head. So I don't. I, I think that's correct. If in doubt, project confidence. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, that no. one. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I was reflecting, then I was sort of spiralling a little bit and going, well, all the all my friends who I've talked to about also pronounce it Fascagale, but then is that just because they've heard me pronounce it that way? Anyway, so it's... P-H-A-S-C-O-G-A-L-E. So I, I call it Fasco. Anyway, it's... Well, you do a little dance and sometimes I think Harry, he's like sort of super gorgeous and goofy about his love of these animals, which really is infectious, I have to say. But I did get a little bit frustrated that you don't tell us where these creatures are. And this is this is de- deliberately stylistic, isn't it? That yeah. Where so, are these eight platypus so that, w- that I can see if I go on the Yarra? You're not going to tell, are you? So that was something that I really put a lot of thought into and um, had a bit of discussion with my publisher about as well um, because as much as we want to celebrate these animals and the environment they live in, there's also a responsibility to protect them. And I mean, I don't want to be you know, too overly confident about how many books I'm going to sell, but <laughs> you don't want to send thousands of people to the river to a particular spot on the riverbank looking for looking for platypuses. So, um, if people do a bit of research and do, do a bit of googling and find it's pretty easy to find out where these things are, but I didn't want to because a lot of the species that I'm that I talk about in the book are threatened species, like the powerful owls and the fascales and the platypuses. Um, you don't want to send a whole bunch of people. To where those animals live, and then stress them, and then and so for powerful owls, for instance, um, the, the, in the chapter about powerful owls, one of the experiences I write about is actually there was a pair nesting in a park in along the Yarra, and it was during lockdown in 2021. And listeners will probably remember in lockdowns, all the parks were just crammed with people, like yeah. getting their exercise. Like they've never been so busy. Um, and as a result of that, these owls abandoned their nest and now this is a threatened species and the fact that it's nesting in the inner city you know in in our suburbs is incredible um this is australia's largest owl it's a really incredible charismatic animal um an apex predator and so yeah i was i was very wary of wanting to protect the animals in that regard um and also you know maybe if i'm a little bit vague about where they are i might encourage people to Go out and just That's spend right, some time it? enjoying wandering around along the area. I must say, I've hardly, I have seen platypus in the wild in different places, East Gippsland, uh, down near the Otways, and they are so fun to see because they're like up and then down. You and you're like, where are they going to pop out again? Yeah. You know? ability to spot them, though. I've never seen one in the wild. And I'm like, how does he do that? How do you find them? So once you get your eye in, like people... 
for starters, this, right now, this is the best time to see it because this is the breeding season, September, uh-huh. October, so they're super active. Um, by platypus standards. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> not working too hard, are they? <laughs> um, so, you know, you can see it in, like, in the middle of the day and stuff like that um, if you're in the right spot. Um, but also, people talk about how, you know, oh, like that, you know, they sort of look like a bit like a log or something like that. It's like, once you get your eye in, once you see it, there's... They look exactly like a platypus. Mm. Like once you see it, and once you realise, hang on, that brown blob wasn't there before. Like there's there's nothing else that you could mistake. Them for. No, there's not too many other animals <laughs> that look like a platypus either. So <laughs> I was speaking with Harry Sadler all about his book, A Clear Flowing River, which is kind of a love letter of sorts to the Birrarung, the Yarra River, um, touching base with a whole range of people who who tend to it, um, and taking us on a journey through the creatures that call it home, as well. And I mean, just sort of on that sort of tension between bringing more more, more attention to the Yarra itself and encouraging people to to love it um, and visit, um, but also not contributing to things like erosion um, and making it difficult for other species to continue to live there as well. That really comes out in a chapter where you speak to someone called Anna Ridgway who leads a group called the Riverbankers there. So what can you kind of say about this sense that there are a whole lot of people who who love the Yarra and and try to sort of nurture it, but also that we as humans do leave a mark as well? Yeah, so Anna and the Amsterdam Riverbankers are in incredible group of people they're really passionate very 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 grassroots i mean literally grassroots <laughs> um <laughs> uh and they and they're working revegetating in a very small area of the of the lower yarra right in the flood zone so they're working in the, in the hardest parts in, in parts of the riverbank where even um councils don't work because it's so because it's so hard um and yeah they they're very big on on education and or educating the public and just sort of engaging in conversations because they're on the main Yarra Trail, so they have people passing by all the time and sort of asking what they're doing. Um, and they're very passionate about making sure that people are aware of how fragile the riverbanks are. Um, the the reason why the river is the colour it is uh, is because um, from the middle and lower Yarras, the riverbanks and the, the soil along are all clay. So the, the brown colour of the river comes from very fine suspended clay particles which are in there because of erosion from the riverbanks because there's been so much land clearing and the trees aren't there in the same numbers to hold the riverbanks together. When you have flooding events, which are getting more common with climate change, that just washes great swathes of riverbank away. So, um, yeah, river riverbank care is a really important <laughs> thing to be aware of and that comes down to also how people enter the river, whether it's to swim or to take a boat on the river. Um, there's a group of people who are called the Yarra Yabbies who have been swimming at Deep Rock every every morning um, since 2021, since the middle of the year 2021. So they've been doing it for two years now. Um, and at Deep Rock where they swim, there's lots of... Because it was a former swimming site. And a former Is that in swimming. sort of Elphington area? Or the, uh, that's in the Yarra Bend Park. Yarra so Bend Park. Oh, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a few hundred metres upstream from, from Mary Creek. Yeah, from I know Falls. what you mean, yeah. Um, but in that, in that specific location, there's a lot of rock slabs that were deliberately put there so people could enter the river. Mm. So you can enter the river without damaging the, the riverbank so much. But in other areas, I went for a swim up at Laughing Waters in, in Eltham, which is a popular swimming spot. And there the riverbank is so damaged and eroded that someone's actually put a rope so you can lower yourself down, which is kind of indicative of a lot of the attitudes that have not just to the river but to the environment in general. It's not, maybe I should leave this area alone a bit so I can recover. It's, 
how can I get around this environmental damage and keep utilising yeah. this bit of the environment without worrying about what's what it's doing to the to this patch of the riverbank. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, I, the swimmers impress me because I know exactly where you mean. Where pe- and often people's dogs swim there too, yeah. don't they? <laughs> uh, in that part, I didn't know its name, Deep Rock. Uh, but all the way up from about there, all the way up, people swim in the river. But it, I mean, it's banned to swim in the river. I think from say Dites Falls sort of area from, downwards from Gibbs Street below, mm. from Gibbs Street down. So below from below Gibbs Street, you're not allowed to swim. And it's, and I I mean for a long time I thought that was because it was polluted, but it's actually because of danger and boat traffic and yeah, things like yeah, this. Exactly. But is it? People have just swum in the upper parts of the river because it feels clean and you've got beautiful trees around you. Is it clean though? Did you uh, discover anything about the yeah, health so, of the river? So the river is divided into three sections, three broad sections. There's the upper Yarra the middle and the lower Yarra. So where we are in the inner city here is the lower Yarra. When you get up to sort of around Eltham, Warrandyte kind of areas, which is where people swim quite a lot, that's the, the middle Yarra. And that area is is the the cleanest bit of the river, at least in terms of what what the um, sort of regular official health <laughs> testing does. Um, when you get further out of the Yarra Valley, then it gets polluted again because of um, off runoff from those sort of sewage tanks and things like that and agriculture um, and, and agriculture and that kind of stuff. But um yeah you can go and um, look at the sort of the water monitoring websites and consistently except for when there's been a big flood event, um, consistently the middle Yarra, so around that Elf and Warrandite kind of area is always rated as the healthiest and that's where you see a lot of people swimming. Um, the the Yarra Yabbies, the people who've been swimming at Deep Rock in the lower Yarra, um, they've one of them has like a little sort of home water testing kit, so they, they test the water. But also they're quite because they've been doing it for two years, sort of every every day. A lot of them, um, they've become quite sort of I don't want to say blasé, but they've become very very confident in the quality of the water there. And I mean, there are precautions you can you can take. So if, if it hasn't rained for a while. Um, then you know, the the water is likely to be cleaner immediately after a rain. Like the rule of thumb is, I think, forty eight hours after a, after a major rain event. Don't it's similar swim. to the bay, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, yeah, we sort of take it for granted that you can swim in the bay, and we don't really think about all the pollution issues in the bay. But there's, there's a lot of <laughs> that, absolutely, and you can often tell straight after a big downpour. Yeah. It looks all kind of grimy. You know, speaking to someone who grew up next to um, next to the bay. Uh, but I mean, you wrote this book because you have a deep affection for the Yarra. Did your relationship to the river change at all as a result of writing it and speaking to all these people? Um, only in as much, and my partner could testify. Only in as much as I wave at it now every time I go past. <laughs> <laughs> actually, my, actually my, my partner asked me the other day if I'd shown the book to the river yet, and I haven't. <laughs> um, no, I think I've. So I've always lived sort of near since I moved to Mount. I've always lived near the river, and I've always had this affection for it. Um, and I think it's more just a process of that affection developing over time. Mm. Um, I've become probably more aware of just the sheer number and diversity of sort of community efforts to <laughs> to restore the river, um, which is kind of what writing a book is like, really. You just learn about things and you learn about all sorts of things that you can't fit in the book <laughs> as well. Um, 
Yeah, I don't think my attitude to the river has has changed from writing the book. Yeah, but they, they I say... Just, I loved it before and I love it still. Well, that, that's good to hear because they say don't study what you're passionate about. <laughs> but if it's only deepened your love for the river, then that's a positive thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so good to have you back, Carrie, and congrats on the book. It's called Clear Flowing Yarra. It's out via a firm press and highly commended. It's a really fun read. And if you want to learn more about the Brirung, the river that runs right through the heart of Melbourne, or if you live in the upper region, and you want to see yourself really uh, and and your communities represented and the love and passion put into restoring riverbanks and and also helping keep these critters alive some of them threatened uh, yeah this book is for you clear flowing Yarra Harry Sadler is our guest and thank you so much Harry lovely to see you well, thanks so much for having me back it's been really lovely Triple R on FM digital online via the app And just there, The Way I Made You Feel from 1990's Honey Steals Gold. And those albums, long out of print, have been remastered and reissued through Remote Control Records. And as part of that, and celebrating that, I suppose, Ed is embarking on a big national tour. The first time he's hit the road playing his solo work with a band in tow since 2009. And this Wednesday here in Melbourne Town, you can catch Ed playing at the National Theatre in St Kilda. And ahead of that, he joins us on the line. Hey, Ed, how are you going? I'm I'm going pretty well, thanks. How are you? Going well. And um, this tour just kicked off over the past weekend, I believe. How were the, the first couple of shows? Oh, look, they they were fantastic. I mean, I, I, I at the first show, I, I tripped and fell down some stairs, which um, kind of uh, made made my performance a bit achy, I guess. But um, it, they went really well. I was better by the second one, pretty much, and um, you know the band kind of carried me. I made them carry me on stage. Excellent. <laughs> like literally carry you. Oh, well, that, I, I did suggest that to them, but they didn't seem that keen. <laughs> put them, put them to good use. So, do, do you do sort of a, a, an extra safety assessment now? I do, what was that? Sorry. Do you do an extra safety assessment now? On the, uh, the safe well, setup. You know, the funny, the funny thing, the funny thing is that we, you know, we, the, the place we were playing was in Wyong, and it was the arts uh, theatre there, and uh, they have really strict um, health and safety provisions, and you know, we we're getting lots of lectures and things, and um, but uh, yeah, I still managed to ignore all that and uh, managed to fall down the stairs. <laughs> well, probably made him sweat a little bit for a moment there, but it's it's good to hear that you're, you're okay. Well, and... they, they were wedding when they hear from my lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> They've been warned. No, no. <laughs> um, so, and then you played, I think, in the Blue Mountains on Saturday night. Where, where are you now? Are you still in that sort of region? or No, no, I'm in Brisbane at the moment. Okay. Um, and then heading down here for the, the show at St Kilda this Wednesday. And I suppose with these two albums that have so far been reissued, I mean, the the start of a the reissue campaign, I suppose, through Remote Control Records, are you the kind of person that does listen back very much to your old material? No, not unless I have to sort of thing. It's, um, to me, they're, they're all sort of moments in time that I refer to them, you know, when I need to. But you, the, the thing when you do a record and you mix it and kind of thing there's so much you know concentrated um, effort and time that 
goes into them that you kind of need to move on, otherwise it's sort of, you know, you go a bit crazy because, you know, there's always something that you can kind of, oh, that should have been a bit better or that could have been different or, you know, that sort of thing. So, no, you have to, I, I do this anyway. I just sort of let it go after a while. I didn't have, haven't listened to either of those albums for, dare I say, decades, actually, um, until it came to kind of going going through them for the remastering. I mean, were you also conscious that maybe other people, particularly younger people that stream music, uh, weren't able to access some of these albums? Was that part of a, a motivation to get them remastered and then get them onto streaming services? No, that was a suggestion from Remote Control, actually. I, I was never a, a, a big streaming advocate or anything. You know, like it's a... From my perspective, it's, you know, you're kind of giving the music away in a lot of ways. And um, uh, But Remote Control suggested that it's an important way that the uh, youngsters listen to music. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, I'll... I'll put on my tie-dyed flares and get with the program kind of thing. <laughs> Take their advice. And um, when, when you did sort of have a listen to these, with fresh years, I suppose, because they have been remastered, what was that experience like? Did it kind of transport you back there or give you a sense of what you were trying to do with those two albums? Because they are, you know, they're quite distinct, coming five years apart, a bit different stylistically, yeah. and even, you know, with Honey Steel's Gold, there's a few tracks that are really expansive, going for kind of eight and nine minutes on that album. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was that like? Um, it was it was good. I, I, I think, you know, both both albums, in a way, kind of, you know, they, they do reflect what I was trying to go for at the time. Electrical Storm was a particularly unorchestrated, uh, sparse and sort of slightly jagged kind of record, I guess, you know, fairly raw. Honey Steel's Gold, yeah, by that, by that stage... I, I, I didn't have a permanent band and I was getting into a much more expansive way of not only write, well, writing for performance in a way and uh, allowing it to to kind of, um, you know, move from night to night. And um, I, I, I think, yeah, it, it's it's successful in that, in that regard. And uh, we, we do kind of um, follow that sort of approach with this with what we've been doing on this tour and I was thinking you know um, with regards to how you listen if you're not sort of you know now that you've got your flares on you might listen to streaming services but normally if you if you don't how how do you consume music yourself Ed um uh, when I'm when I'm working I, I I tend not to be able to you know devote a lot of time to listening to what um other people are doing it just kind of clutters up my head in a way you know but if, if I'm listening to music which which I, I hardly ever put things on in the background kind of thing so um, if I if I listen I'll I'll usually listen off a record or a CD or something like that but that's you know because it my my desire in that situation is to actually listen to an album you know and I, I just, streaming isn't isn't really that's just different. That's sort of like, you know, you just pick and choose stuff. It's like having a, your own, you know, infinite jukebox or something like that. Um, so it, it, it's a different thing. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not saying I don't use stuff, you know, like when um, 
I, I, I want to hear what you know what's just hit the top five in the pop charts or something. I'll probably listen on Spotify. Yeah, and does that sort of listening that you're doing feed into the music that you're writing currently at all? Because I mean, you're involved in a number of different collaborations. It was you know with Jim White sort of playing around the place in 2021, and with Asteroid Ecosystem as well. They're sort of quite experimental, I suppose, in approach. Do you sort of think about trying things a little bit differently, maybe based on things you've been listening to, or is it much more an organic process that happens through actually collaborating with others, you know, in the same place and, and time? I, I think it's sort of the, the sort of more um, experimental kind of approach just comes out of playing um, either by by myself um, or when I'm working with someone like Jim or Asteroid Ecosystem. Um, you know, Asteroid Ecosystem, the intention was to kind of basically take little themes and then develop them uh, fairly spontaneously sort of thing. And with Jim, it was a matter of playing songs, but not really kind of um, referencing the originals outside of, like, you know, melodic or lyrical kind of things. Has that changed at all the way you approach or you're sort of planning to approach these songs from... Uh, you know, the albums, Electrical Storm and Honey Steals Gold. I mean, do you find that you're playing them differently coming out of those kinds of collaborations, especially with Jim, I suppose, where he's such a particular kind of drummer where almost by him being involved, the song itself kind of needs to change? Um, yeah, well, with Jim, I mean, he, he, he does play differently. It, it is sort of without without being jazz or without even being... I, I, would, I wouldn't call it improvisation because we are playing songs but we we do have uh, especially as a duo you kind of have a, a a bit of room to maneuver fairly quickly i mean when i first started i think the album that probably kind of set me on this path was an album that i did in uh, 1990 i think which was called today wonder which was a duet with mark dawson who's playing drums on this current tour and that, that was sort of at that point i'd been like the 1980s laughing clowns and then my early solo stuff it was all kind of fairly arranged which you know people kind of think the clowns were some wild improvisational kind of act but we weren't uh, totally you know there were very arranged sections of those songs um at the end of the 80s, after the yard goes on for ever split, I, I, I just had been touring the world for a couple of years and doing fairly rigid um, versions of the songs, meaning that you know they they were play, played or attempted to be played pretty much the same every night, and I got tired of that, and I just wanted to get to a point where. I, I sort of stripped the arrangement away from what I'd actually written and um, kind of see what was left of the song and if there was enough to then build something spontaneously from night to night, you know, to varying degrees sort of thing. And that's what we're doing doing with it, whether, whether working with... I'd, I'd say, you know, everything that I do, working with Jim was a great experience. We recorded an album, I should put that in here, which will um, be out uh, next March, hopefully. Oh, nice. Um, and the Astro there's a, a new Asteroid Ecosystem album, uh, which was um, recorded live, and that 
is coming out, I think, in a couple of weeks. And all, every, everything that I do kind of, you know, informs the next project, either in terms of, well, I don't want to do that again, or that, that was a good thing to have done, and I'll see if I can um, incorporate that. And I found, found both working with Jim and Asteroid Ecosystem. I mean, they're all, all such, you know, great, inspiring musicians that, you know, there's, there's no way that you can't take something away from that experience of uh, working with people like that. I'm pretty impressed with how many shows you're playing. I just counted them up. It's 13 shows in a month, the first on Friday, the 1st of September, and the the last one in this, um, in what we're advertising anyway, is Saturday the 30th. And does that lend itself well to building on night to night, that you, you've got such a condensed tour planned? Ed? I mean, I don't think I noticed this many band doing that as concentrated as what you're doing this yeah. month it's funny isn't it because in in if, if you were to go back some years admittedly that would you know we would have done that in a foot and a half the time really yeah well i was thinking that because i mean we've heard you know we've chatted to people over the years on this show about touring and people that that worked hard in in the 80s in particular would say oh we do two shows a day like like in the up you know one and double yeah. double bills well if, if if you were if you were taking a band on the road in the 80s or 90s you, you'd always try and fit in a couple of lunchtime shows just just to make economic sense of it and um you know and in those days you had you had the student unions at the university that would always be putting on really great and yeah. very well played shows sort of thing and um so that, that was a, a loss to working musicians, I think, when that kind of got closed down. Um, I, that was sort of like around 20 years ago or something when John Howard was king or something. And they Yeah, they had them on campus when I was it started at uni at least, but it's, you know, I work at unis these days and there's definitely no bands playing at lunchtime from what I can tell. No, no, it's just, it's just something that's just died. And, um, yeah, it was, it was good, you know, like it was hard work, but um, at least at least you kind of came away with um, something to buy some food later. Yeah, exactly. And well, I was thinking, you know, from that era that we, we're talking about, I mean, that's when when stations like Triple R were born and when started to get the, the listeners, the subscribers and all of that sort of thing. And we've just done a 10-day campaign here on 3RRR, uh, you know, celebrating all things community radio, all things RRR. And, I mean, that would have been a change for you too as a a, a working musician to have outlets like like community radio in, in Brisbane where, where you were, but also Melbourne, Sydney, other places. Was that a, a big change? Do you remember? Um, yeah, it it, it, it kind of crept up slowly in a way like in the in the mid 70s i think when triple z started and 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 triple r started um i i I don't think that there was sort of a lot of connection in those very early days with what well not that i knew because like the saints had moved overseas and um i wasn't really sure what was happening but by the 80s and into the 90s it, it kind of became became sort of pivotal to the operation in a lot of ways. You know, like if you were on a tour, apart from doing the lunchtime shows, you'd also do things like live to air performances for the community radio stations. And and to be fair, you know, with Triple triple J or or Double J, whatever it was at the time. Um, So, you know, the 
the community stations were, for me, I think, probably the only airplay that I got in those days. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that it was the way that, that people got to hear new records and uh, re- really important, I think. And what's your, what's your sense of that today? Because, I mean, we've touched on, you know, streaming services and the like and, and your music being put out through streaming services as part of this reissue, remastering campaign. I mean, do you still feel like there is a really strong connection between your work and all the various, you know, really interesting projects you're involved with, such as Asteroid Ecosystem, your work with Jim White and, and the like? Like, is there a really nice synergy there today still, do you think, between community radio and, and your music? Yeah, it, it dropped out a little bit there, but I... I... I find that these days it's a little harder. I mean, it, which is weird because you know, with social me- media, you kind of think in some ways that that would really strengthen things, and it does to some degree. But everything is very, very you know, the way people hear things, um, where people live these days, it, it, it's kind of changed. I mean, I suppose you know, people that used to come to my shows when I was starting out, you know, might might live all over the place. And I think that's kind of, you can kind of see that in, in Victoria and especially because of the, you know, we're doing two, two out, of, out of the sort of the centre of town shows at um, Queenscliff Cliff and um, Minion. And, you know, and the, the, these shows go really well. They're sold out, mm. you know. It's, um, so... Yeah, there has been sort of like it's it, it, it has changed, and I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure that I'm sort of totally on top of you know how much it's changed, sort of thing. As long as people are still coming to your shows, that's that's the main thing. Um, and what well, about yeah? yeah. <laughs> and um, I noticed you've sort of dropped some new merch. There's some new Saints merch doing the rounds online. T-shirts modelled by the likes of Kid Congo Powers, John Dwyer from the OCs, Ty Siegel, yeah. and Mark Arm from Mud Honey promoting your T-shirts as yeah. well. How's that we, going? We, Are they... we, get, we, we get we get the finest models. <laughs> <laughs> Are they selling them well? Are they flying out the door? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, they, they the T-shirts came out to coincide with the reissue of I'm Standard, which I'm sort of, I can't quite remember which anniversary it is because it, we were aiming at, um, I think uh, we were aiming for a 40th anniversary, then a 45th, and nothing quite sort of gelled. So I think, yeah, I think we might be at the 47th anniversary or something. So that a single sold out in, in an hour or something, and uh, the T-shirts are going going well. I, have, I haven't had any sort of updates, but I've seen a lot of people posting pictures of themselves wearing them, so I guess that's um, something. Totally. And um, so people... Listening... I, I could also mention at this point that it's kind of the first official line of um, merch for the Saints. Um, oh, right. You know, apart from one little run that we did in 2007 when we reformed for a, a show in Brisbane, but um, yeah, so you, you can only get the official stuff from our outside. Other things, uh, just people, you know, doing knockoffs, basically. Yeah, right. So, how do people get onto that? Is that just a Saints sort of official it's, uh, website? No, well, it's, we've linked it in because it does get a bit confusing, and I won't go into all the reasons why it's confusing, but you can via edcooper.com. Excellent. Just 
take, take the trouble to look through the various pages. It may not be the first thing that you see, but they are there. And these two albums that have been reissued, they're part of a broader campaign. So what's next, Cap Off the Rank, for you? What, what's the next um, previous um, release that's going to drop? Uh, the next one we're putting out, well, we're putting out two, actually. Uh, one is Frontierland, which I recorded in 1996. That um, has never, never been released on vinyl before. Um, so that that's that, that's really great because '96 was you know the the height of the CD era and and records just did not sell at all. Um, so Frontierland's coming out with a lovely deluxe cover and um, sounding fantastic. And the other album that's coming out is one that we found going through the tapes that everyone, well myself and Phil Punch, my co-producer can't remember doing. <laughs> it was done, done short, I, I can tell that it was done shortly after after Frontierland, and um, I think I did it in uh, in anticipation of a tour that um, I can't can't remember the, the exact details of it, but it's really good. That's coming out. That's called Mr. Miracle with a K. Um, and so Frontierland and Mr. Miracle are coming out together in October. Then next year we have a remastered Black Ticket Day and Laughing Clowns, Law of Nature. Excellent. Well, lots lots happening in the world of Ed Cooper. Um, best of luck with the show this Wednesday night here um, in Melbourne in St Kilda at the National Theatre. Look out for the stairs as well. <laughs> Take it easy. <laughs> And, um, and best of luck with the remainder of the tour as well for the rest of this month. You're going to be um, sort of heading up the East Coast by the looks of things, um, finishing up at the Sunshine Coast on uh, Saturday the 30th of September. It's been great spending time with you this morning, Ed. I um, really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.